0: Hello everyone, I'm pleased to welcome you to this virtual research seminar on irregular migration and food security, of view from West Africa. We know that food insecurity has many complex causes, including poverty and weather or price shocks. Food insecurity has also been linked to chronic health conditions, mental health disorders, and poor child development outcomes. However, today we explore a relationship that has received less attention the potential link between food security and irregular migration. So this seminar addresses the question, how does food insecurity affect irregular migration? And what role can can a needs-based humanitarian response play? A recent collaboration between the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI, and the World Food Program took a root based approach to looking at irregular migration in West Africa, examining migrant origins, their transit experience, and the situation where their journey stalls or ends. The mixed-methods study includes case studies of the Terraria Desert crossing across the south-central Sahara for the Malian and Libyan migrants. The resulting report, and interactive website designed by MIT's Civic Design Lab, illustrate the migrant journey and associated risks as migrants make their way from West Africa to the Maghreb, and for some, onto Europe. During the webinar today, you can submit your questions in the Q&A panel. We have an exciting set of presentations for you, including an overview of study results and an introduction to the website on this topic from researchers at
1: WFP, IFPRI, MIT, and the World Bank. And with that, let's get underway. Our first two speakers
0: are Sarah Musavi, from World Food Program and Alan Debray from IFPRI, Sarah Musavi. I'll introduce them both. Sarah Musavi has some twenty years of service with the United Nations World Food Program in duty stations including Sudan, Somalia, and the Philippines, in addition to high-level crises in Iraq, Nepal, Pakistan, South Sudan, Cameroon, and Ukraine. Prior to WFP, Sarah worked with the Food for Peace Office of USAID and was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Dominican Republic where she managed community-based agricultural programs. She holds a BS in agronomy and an MA in nutrition anthropology from the University of Maryland. Sarah is currently working with the emergencies and transition teams of PD leading the evidence building knowledge management and learning team. She's also pursuing her Doctor of International Affairs degree at Johns Hopkins SICE. And Alan DeBrow is a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. He has a PhD in agricultural and resource economics from the University of California at Davis. Prior to joining IFPRI, he was an assistant professor of economics at Williams College. His research works on understanding the impacts of migration and agricultural interventions on source households and ways to improve consumption patterns in low and middle income countries. Much of his research involves primary source data collection, He's collaborated on primary source surveys with partners in 18 different countries in Africa, Asia,
1: and Latin America. And with that, I will turn it over to Sarah Musavi to get us underway.
2: Thank you very much, Daniel, and welcome everyone to this, I think, very interesting um, discussion around irregular migration, looking at the West Africa route. Um, As Dan mentioned, this has been a a really incredible collaboration between the World Food Program and IFPRI and MIT, including the engagement of other really important partners, um, such as the International Organization for Migration and the Mixed Migration Center who contributed um, invaluable data to this initiative so that we really had the opportunity to uh, undertake a robust analysis. And I'm sure Sarah will will speak to to this gratitude in her intervention as well. But if um, these organizations, and I hope you are online, uh, thank you very much. So um, again, this has been a really incredible collaboration. Next slide, please. So um, the objectives of this research were, were really to understand and to articulate Um, a problem statement around irregular migration in the West Africa context through North Africa. Um, Just to say the impetus of this research was really to build on previous work that WFP had done in our Central America region, um, really looking at the same issues. But again, in that region, we had yet to undertake such such a study analysis in this geographic region and it was important um, to do so in order for WFP um, and other partners to be able to contribute in an evidence-based way uh, to to a solution. Uh, The study really aims to understand the links between migration and food security, irregular migration and food security. And as we engaged on this topic, we understood that uh, understanding the protection risks Uh, were incredibly important to this conversation. And this is where um, the work of MIT uh, so nicely fits in. Next slide, please. So our research questions were primarily to understand the profile of the migrants and the key drivers motivating them to relocate. And we wanted to look at how food security was compromised for irregular migrants and what the risks they face um, in, in transit. And as Daniel mentioned, we, we aim to take a roots based approach to this study. So we looked at um, the situation, um, let's say in three different phases. So the origin, the transit, and then what we call um, the, the uh, protracted transit area. Uh, of the the overall migrant route. Next next slide, please. Um, This may seem uh, like a semantic, but it's in fact very important. It's very important to use um, and to understand what we're talking about here, and terminology um, will help us do that. So you know, there is this overall kind of profile of displacement, which includes uh, various various profiles within that, um, including refugees, including inter- internally displaced persons. And what we're talking about here are irregular migration, uh, and we're using the the definition of IOM, so which is the movement of persons that takes place outside The laws, regulations or international agreements of governing the entry into or exit from the state of origin transit or destination, so what we're looking at um, is that you know that movement that is under the radar and that's international. Next slide please. So why is this important? Why is it important for us to be looking at this topic? And why is it a compelling issue for humanitarian organizations? Um, Irregular migration happens, like, I mean, as by definition under the radar. And so this with it inherently brings um, really important protection risks um, that I think are important for the international community. Um, they, their engagement in th- this type of migration also contributes to um, contributes to you know these the illicit activities of human human trafficking. Um, while smuggling can be quite nuanced, and sometimes you know we need to be careful about how we you know talk about these terms because in some cases they it is facilitation. Um, again, it is um, it is a, a contribution to an economy that's off the radar. And so, you know, all of these the the risks and the dangers um, combined to, to individuals makes us a very important issue, not to mention the fact that it is incredibly um, m- motivated from a political perspective. And the more we use evidence and research. And facts to talk about the problem statement, the better we're better off we're going to be in the end in finding proper solutions. Next slide, please. So our, our the methodology of this study, um, as Daniel mentioned, was a mixed methods uh, methodology. We um, undertook a very robust global literature review that was underpinned by global key informant interviews and, subject with, and also with subject matter experts um, and other very key stakeholders in the conversation of um, um, irregular migration, operations, food security, and so on. And then we included two case studies, um, Mali, that represented a, case, a country case of origin and Libya, um, a protracted transit uh, case. Next slide, please. The Mali case study included um, secondary data analysis of a very significant survey that Alan will speak to in more detail, which helped us understand um, the details around uh, households that have um, family members who migrate. Um, It looked at food security, and we also tried to tease out a bit um, the issue of of climate change and how that affects livelihoods and whether or not that really um, contributed in a a robust way to decision making related to to migration. We also included interviews with the informants, there were phone interviews, uh, surveys and and focus group discussions. And in the Libyan case study, there was a mixed quantitative and qualitative uh, survey, um, including interviews and focus groups, uh, focus group interviews with different, um, with, with different uh, populations in different areas of the country. Over to you, Alan.
3: Great, thanks, uh, Sarah. I'm gonna go through the key findings of our, our study. Um, so I wanna talk a bit about who the irregular migrants are I want to talk about why people have migrated irregularly, then a bit about irregular migration and food security, and then I can't see the last one, irregular migration and risks. And then we'll turn over to, to Sarah Williams to talk more about those those risks. Um, maybe a little bit more about the, the surveys we did in Mali. We, did, uh, we used the LSMS data um, that was most recently collected. Um, to get an understanding of where migrants were coming from in in Mali, um, we then followed that with key informant interviews that we did uh, among populations in rural areas that had uh, that had more higher migration rates um, to, to get at the, the uh, how rural migration was was leading to irregular migration. um in Libya, we did about we did roughly 400 interviews um, with migrant West African migrant households, um, and then we followed that with key informant interviews um, in Saba, which is a town um, in the Sahara, uh, basically a, on the way towards Tripoli. And then we did a, a number of, um, we did uh, focus groups with community leaders, African community leaders in um, in Libya. In Tripoli, rather. Okay, so moving on um, to start talking about who the irregular migrants are. Irregular international irregular migrants tend to be well, relatively well educated males from urban areas. The key ter- word there is relatively. Um, these are not areas with with high levels of education, but the the people who do migrate tend to be high, relatively well educated. Um, recall that education is correlated with income levels, so we're talking about people who, and as as urban versus rural uh, uh, location for households, these people tend to be a little bit better off um, than average households in, in Mali. Um, households associated with migrants are also less likely to be categorized as food insecure than other households. Um, migration is costly. We found um, amongst the, the Libyan migrants that the average cost uh, was around $658. Uh, people uh, estimated that continuing to Europe would range between $900 and $1,300. Um, so, it's, so you need a pretty big uh, pile of cash. To, uh, there's a big fixed cost to being able to undergo migration. Um, that all said, there's a growing trend of among women and children from West Africa to undertake irregular migration. Um, women in Girls are, are subject to gender based violence, exploitation, and, and trafficking. And according to the Gallup World Poll, women appear to be more likely to intend to migrate when food insecure. A last thing to say is that we, we did find that people who are already food insecure, when they participate in migration uh, of, or, or in leaving the place that they, they live, they tend to go shorter distances than people who go. Um, who are trying to, say, reach Europe, um, or or Libya. I'll, t- I'll talk a little bit more about Libya in a, in a moment. But essentially, the thing to think about is that when, when people are poor, they tend to not try to go extremely long distances, um, with, with one exception. I'll get to that in a minute. All right. So what we find in in terms of migrant profiles is that in Mali, the international migrants tend to be these well-educated, relatively well-educated males from urban areas, and they're less likely to be food insecure. In Libya, we find that the migrants we interviewed also tended to be male or young adults, and about two-thirds of them were from urban areas. Okay, so why do why do people migrate, um, or why are the people in in our, our our quantitative survey telling us that they migrate? Well, they're telling us that the The main reasons that they gave were low incomes at home um, or unemployment at home. Um, there, these This accounted for about ninety percent of the main reasons that people gave for migrating. this is revealed this this isn't you know uh, necessarily complete. They may have had multiple reasons to migrate, but they they don't tend to, um, you know, mention other factors like political instability or violence or food insecurity as much as they do those income uh, factors, those low income factors. And that's borne out by by relative wage levels that we see in, in the Libya survey. Um, so most migrants report leaving their homes for economic reasons. Um, and this is actually quite consistent with the literature. UNHCR uh, did a bigger sample, a uh, bigger survey uh, a bit earlier in Libya amongst Africans and Asians. Um, migrants from East African countries actually report leaving their countries because of political persecution or conflict or econ- and, and economic distress, which is, gets back to the low income. Um, so we do see a bit of that as well. Um, just to note, Libya is, is quite a destination for migrants. Um, West African migrants are, are just one group that, that we find there. Um, it used to be a much more substantial migrant destination before the fall of the Qaddafi government. Um, but yet there, the IOM estimates that there are five or 600,000 migrants at any given time uh, living in Libya. Uh, most of those are, as, uh, are irregular. So thinking about the economics literature, we think about four considerations that underlie these migrant decisions uh, that might lead to to irregular migration. Again, these don't necessarily work in isolation and each of them can affect an individual migrant's choice. So we've already talked about the wage differentials. Um, A second factor is risks of migrating. And there are all sorts of risks that one can imagine um, that, that migrants might face um the risk of finding shelter when you get to your potential destination you risk um not being able to find a job when you get to your destination you risk not knowing what the destination is like you know what your home area is like but you don't know what your what your destination will be like when you get there um you may actually, you may perceive what it would would be like but you don't necessarily know um, some of these risks, and, and then when you migrate irregularly, you're facing another set of risks um, related to uh, the fact that you may not uh, have legal status in the place where your place of um, destination or while you're on the journey there. Um, and those that leads to further risks. Um, There are migration costs, as we've discussed a little bit before. Um, Some of these are monetary costs. Some of them might be be psychic costs as well, the the fact that you are away from your family. Um, And these these risks and these costs can be mitigated by social networks. Um, Some of my earliest research showed, for instance, that internal migrants in China um, are at by the, even by the turn of the century, internal migrants in China Almost half of them already had a, a family member in the destination that they chose. So they're really linking to their social networks. Uh, the rest of them, most of the rest of them had somebody from the village that they knew in their destination of choice. So migrants often build, use those social networks to reduce the costs and uh, mitigate the risks of, of migration. Um, so let's think about how food security uh na- next relates to irregular migrant migrant mi- irregular migration um at the origin um, the the this can be a direct um, relationship in the case of acute times of food insecurity when you have no other option to to get out of hunger um, as I said before uh, our research shows that 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 type of migration tends to go shorter distances, it may cross international borders, but it tends to be a, a shorter distance type of migration um, when you have that acute uh, food insecurity. The, the, the exception, if you think about the, the determinants again might be if you have social networks at, in longer distance uh, locations, um, which kind of, kind of explains what we see with um, acute problems in Central America. Uh, and uh, links to the United States, because there are big Central American populations in the United States. Uh, the relationship between food migration and food insecurity uh, can also be indirect when when families are using migration as a coping strategy. So sending somebody out because the uh, if we think one of the reasons we we know migration can migration can, if we think about the overall household portfolio of income generating opportunities, um, by moving away from your your um, your rural household, which is agriculturally based, you're um, changing the covariance of, of the income as as things go badly uh, for that household. And the modal response then we see suggests economic reasons are primary to to migrating. Even if people are relatively well off when they migrate because of the big costs, um, they, these irregular migrants often um, experience negative shocks and hardships that lead to food insecurity while they are on the journey, and we collected a lot of stories about those hardships, and I'm going to share some of those with you in a moment. So irregular migrants in transit may need food assistance, actually, on their journeys if, if they go wrong or badly. And lastly, um, thinking about the destination, uh, if we think about Libya as a destination or or a protracted transit uh, spot, we actually found uh, what I found surprising uh, levels of food insecurity among migrants. um, And they were worse in Saba, which is sort of on the way uh, towards the coast rather than in in Tripoli. 37% of respondents overall suggested they were worried about having enough food to eat. Uh, and twenty seven percent, so almost a, more than a quarter of respondents stated that there were times when they had no food to eat. Um, that said, remittances have a have a positive uh, effect on food security. Studies show that, that there's a significant positive relationship between remittance flows, um so back to uh, the the host country uh, the source countries. Um, and in sub-Saharan Africa, households that report receiving higher remittance flows are less likely to be food insecure. Um, it's not sure, clear, completely clear which way the, the causality runs there, but it's it's important to note that remittances can can have this significant positive effect. Um, and uh, Ed Taylor of Davis uh, suggests in, in some of his work that there are even... Um, Uh, feedback effects within the economy, general equilibrium effects that make those remittances that so those remittances have a multiplier Um, wage differences uh, between countries also uh, cause international remittances to be more impactful than domestic flows Um, domestic that said domestic remittances can really reduce uh, the number of food insecure households if we think about um, you know again the money flowing back from urban to rural areas um, and so policymakers increasingly view remittances as a hunger-reducing tool. Um, turning back to thinking about these these migrant voices, um, I just want to share a couple of the anecdotes that we got from uh, from the migrants the uh, the migrant families themselves. Um, a lot of the families had uh, stories about uh, migrants being swindled by smugglers. For instance, this is one in Mauritania. Um, who took 550,000 on the left. Uh, CFA Franks, that's about a thousand dollars. And that, then he came home and raised more money to go back to Mauritania to reach Spain. Um, so the migrants can be really persistent about deciding to leave. We have a, a one in the top right corner um, who says his son was a victim when he arrived in Cameroon, uh, was lost roughly $500 um, af- by, after, uh, being exposed, I guess, to bandits, um, who, who stole the money. Um, and then we have this one where, uh, again, this is someone from Mali who, who says that, uh, his brother was, was trying to get to France via Italy, um, and was kidnapped by a smuggler whose boat capsized before arriving in Italy. Over a hundred people were killed, but his brother survived and is in, uh, France. Um, even at the destination, um, because of the lack of of status, uh, then migrants can also um, really experience. Uh, they they can still experience hardships um, because they don't have that that legal status to to be there. So here's one where in Equatorial Guinea, my son was arrested by police who took him. In front of his bedroom to turn back, and he lost everything because he couldn't pick up his things. That he su- suggests couldn't have happened if he was in good standing. Um, we had quite a bit of uh of um uh, of dispersion in the amount of time the migrants had been in Libya. That we we uh, turning back to Libya and the and the migrants that we interviewed there. Uh, We had quite a lot of difference in the length of time that they'd been there. Um, And one of the things that we note from the survey is that these these, uh, problems that they face don't go away. Uh, So we see that low income and wages, uh, that's one where actually people might change their perceptions of what are low income and wages over time, right? Um, But people do face problems finding enough employment. um, Personal safety doesn't seem to get better. And if anything, food insecurity may be getting worse um, over time as as people are in Libya. So to summarize on risks, uh, these risks, and Sarah's going to go back go into these uh, in a bit more detail, are particularly high on the Sahara-based migration routes. Um, and the risks remain even in in destinations. Um, and One last point I want to make is that migrants and migrant families who we interviewed um, discussed fatalism around making this journey. So once somebody makes the decision to go, uh, they've made the decision to go, and as we see, they can be really persistent in continuing that decision. So we have a quote, uh, they took alone their decision to migrate, you'll have to go out and try your luck with the help of Allah, and so uh, they're trying their luck, and they will. Uh, they are quite persistent in trying uh, to make it to wherever they've decided to go. Um, so, to summarize, we find that irregular migration is largely driven by wage differentials, climate and change, climate change, and conflict are key drivers as well. They tend to to promote this internal or regional displacement rather than the larger distance irregular migration uh, across international borders into the Maghreb or or into Europe. Food insecurity may not be a key driver for households, but migrants become food insecure uh, during transit or even at their protracted destination or during their protracted destination and protection risks uh, and acute danger are key features of irregular migration. Um, So just to quickly conclude, um, how can we, what can the international community do? Well, one thing is to to work alongside national governments in developing appropriate policies uh, that facilitate economic and employment em- employment opportunities in the country of origin. Um, this can help uh, reduce the wave di- the wage differential between uh, source and destination, although that also leads to the fact that they have more money to pay for migration costs. So it's not uh, so that will, just reduce food insecurity however and that's a positive in general um, given the levels of risk uh, it, it's important to think about entry points uh, seeking entry points for the provision of needs-based assistance to migrants where possible the IOM works on this um, and but but we can do more uh, for sure and in locations where migrants settle or use as protracted transit sites um, It's important to address food insecurity and humanitarian requirements, uh, considering the needs of the host population. Um, Thank you very much. And I'm gonna turn it back over to
1: Dan at this point.
0: Great, thanks Alan. Um, And thanks Sarah too, I really appreciate that. That was incredibly interesting. Um, I will pass now to Sarah Williams from MIT and I'll just briefly introduce Sarah. So Sarah Williams is an associate professor of technology and urban planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where she is also director of the Civic Data Design Lab and the Leventhal Center for Advanced Urbanism. Williams combines her training in computation and design to create communication strategies that expose urban policy issues to broad audiences and create civic change. Her design work has been widely exhibited, including work in the Guggenheim, the Museum of Modern Art, Venice Biennale, Biennale, sorry, and the Cooper Hewitt Museum. And Sarah, now over to you. Thank you.
1: Great, thanks so much. Um, I will share my screen. Um, first, I just wanna say how uh, <clears throat> honored I am to be here today.
4: Uh, with my colleagues Sarah and Alan, and um, what a wonderful relationship this has been between the World Food Program and the International Food Policy Research Institute. I also was just want to recognize that um, for this project, IOM and the Miss Migration Center also shared data with us that made uh, this website possible, so I want to thank them. Um, this project um, is out of the Civic Data Design Lab and we have many staff members that are involved um, in producing it, but most importantly, Ashley Louie, who is the, the project manager. Um, so, you know, we just saw um, incredible findings uh, from the report. Um, and when we worked with the World Food Program and FP, we wanted to think about how to really make the report come alive. And so we decided to create Migrants on the Move, which is an interactive experience to understand the pathways migrants take and the extreme vulnerabilities and risks they face along the way. Um, One of the things that we wanted this website to do is allow you to understand those risks but um, also allow you to feel a certain type of empathy for the migrant experience. Um, And let me walk you uh, through that website now. So thousands of migrants risk their lives each year to travel from West Africa, primarily motivated by wage differentials and the search of better economic opportunities. Although political instability, conflict, and climate change are also contributing factors. The lack of legal and regular pathways for migration often leads to dangerous and deadly journeys across the Sierra desert and Mediterranean seas, and ultimately thousands perish in their pursuit for a better life. Of the estimated 621,000 immigrants in Libya, in 2022, over 40% have origins in West Africa. Building upon data collected by IFPRI, of the 347 migrant responses in Tripoli and Saba from June to July, 2021, this map visualizes the countries where West African migrants originated from. As we just heard, questions in this survey included um, information about place of er origin, journey to Libya, their intentions on moving, current economic conditions, and food security status. Um, And the top countries in which um, were surveyed uh, were Niger, Chad, Nigeria, Mali, and Ghana. And you can see them, uh, the locations mapped here. So Irregular migration is risky and this website features data analysis of risks that migrants face while traveling from West Africa to Libya and further communicates the report findings um, looking at food security along the way. So we mapped migration routes from West Africa to Libya using the data collected. Um, by the International Organization of Migration Displacement Tracking Matrix Flow Monitoring Survey data. This data set contained origin and intended destination locations of 26,000 migrants traveling in West Africa between July 2020 and June 2022. And you can see those routes here on the map. Um, So these are the dark brown routes um, that are appearing on the map here. To further explore how risks vary along this journey, we selected one of those routes to illustrate. um, And that's this route you see here. Um, And what you are seeing in terms of the color is the risk level along that route. These risk levels uh, vary um, depending on different conditions. And so migrants traveling in North Africa often resort to illicit means of traveling with smugglers for protection um, or to help who often uh, choose more remote areas for crossing through treacherous terrain. So what we decided to do Um, is look at these different risk levels, uh, combine them and create an index, which you saw um, on that previous uh, route or transect. So we looked at reported violence. That reported violence came from the 4MI data set of migrants who reported violence and abuses collected by the Mixed Migration Council. We looked at conflict events, um, and this came from armed conflict location event data or ACLED, um, and the total number of incidents reported per location normalized by local population. We looked at foods insecurity levels, um, and this was taken from integrative food security phase classification or IPC, and CADRE harmonized or CH data on regional food security in uh, 2021. The IPC classification system distinguishes acute food insecurity across five uh, severity phases. Then we looked at the issue of reliance on smugglers. Um, So irregular migrants rely on smugglers while traveling uh, through areas that restrict freedom of movement, approaching border crossings, and traveling through areas perceived need for protection. Um, And risk values were assigned based on research on external reporting to address areas along the route where migrants are most likely uh, to rely on smugglers. So where they really need the help or assistance of a smuggler or really rely on that. Then we looked at remoteness. Um, Remoteness data serves as a proxy for the lack of access to water, food, and healthcare. Um, and so as you get further from urban areas, you're more, more vulnerable. And then we looked at heat exposure. Many migrants encounter dehydration exposure to extreme heat, and this data set shows the average of daily maximum temperatures um, uh, from satellite imagery to create that data set. So um, just to kind of take a, a quick peek at the data. Um, that we were working with. We, again, we looked at reported violence, conflict areas, food insecurity, reliance on smugglers, remoteness, and then heat exposure. And we combined these layers together and then pulled them across on one transect or one route, as I mentioned uh, before. So, um, you know, risks. Uh, users can explore the map to see how migration risks vary at different places along their journey. And migration risk is prevalent throughout the journey, um, but the risk level is visualized at a relative scale, indicating higher and lower levels of migration risk, and you can see here um, that on the map. The migration uh, journey narrative is broken up into chapters um, that help the viewer step into the shoes of the migrant who is making their
1: journey. So let's uh, begin that journey. Migrants from
4: ECOWAS countries have freedom of movement and do not need a smuggler for this part of the journey. However, um, some migrants are unclear about that visa m- movement and do uh, wind up um, relying on a smuggler at this area. And so here we're looking at the
1: beginning of the journey and the risks associated with them. Slide. Some of the areas along the journey have limited access
4: to water, food, healthcare, and other resources. Remoteness data visualize the uh, driving time to the nearest city and serves as a proxy for lack of access to resource. Um, This data set visualizes uh, here. Um, So you can see Um, in the journey view, the tooltip shows the migration risk at that specific location of the journey. Um, And we can see that remoteness and access to resources between city to city um, is a bigger migration risk factor during this part of the journey, right? So we've uh, kind of, at the bottom screen here, you can see the index and you can see... um, that remoteness becomes kind of the most important issue that they're facing. Migrants in transit often become vulnerable and seek protection. Armed conflict and location data, the ACLAB data I mentioned before, um, looks at the total incidents reported um, and the conflict events uh, include fatalities, battles, violence against civilians, exploit explosions, remote violence, riots, protests, uh, strategic developments, and multiple event types. There was one limitation to using this APLIT data that general conflict events may not be specific to the migrant population in transit. Um, and normalizing the data by regional population might reflect the, um, not, not be reflective of how many migrants are in that location. But we use it to get a sense of the kind of general Um, conflict in particular areas. Irregular migrants rely on smugglers when traveling through areas that restrict freedom of movement, approaching border crossing and traveling through areas uh, which perceive need for protection. And so risk values were assigned based on this research, as I mentioned earlier. So as you pass through Agadez in the website um, and follow along, many migrants find uh, a smuggler to hire for assistance um, in crossing the Sahara Desert and entering Libya's southwest border. Users can expand the visualization to explore the data further. Um, We can see that 16,000 migrants pass through Agadez and the reliance on a smuggle smuggler risks dramatically increases in
1: this part of the route. Um, so um, here we can see this again.
4: Um, so many migrants are exposed to extreme heat and encounter dehydration, especially when traveling through the barren Sahara Desert. Dehydration and starvation are two of the main causes that lead to fatalities along the route. Um, this data set um, shows the average daily maximum temperature from the MIR satellite in 2022 in regions that are categorized as barren, sparsely vegetated, um in the Esri Africa land cover data set. And though although temperatures may fluctuate seasonally um, and temporarily throughout a given day, barren or sparsely vegetated areas such as the Syria desert provide less shelter and shading protection from extreme heat. So this is why we use this data set to kind of look at the environmental conditions that uh, make people vulnerable. Um, So here, crossing the Sahara Desert, um, this informal route is the riskiest part of the journey uh, where migrants risk violence, extortion, nutrition dispenses, and vehicle accidents. And so when you're in or exploring
1: the website, you can learn about those migrant stories. Um, When migrants enter Libya, they face heightened risks, including
4: extortion from smugglers, um, the risks to their personal safety. Uh, And um, although uh, traveling with a smuggler can be helpful with transportation or provide protection, it also adds risk to personal safety. Migrants who travel with smugglers are also at a higher risk of extortion with limited avenues to seek protection. Um, so we can um, explore um, the risk factors here um, in the data set as you pass through Saba. And as one of the urban stopping points um, after the Sahara Desert, many migrants report violence and abuses in Saba that were experienced while traveling with a smuggler. Um, So here you can see um, as you're in Saba, um, you can explore the data set in the website. You can see how many migrants are here, their exposure um, to heat um,
1: and um, other risk factors. Migrants often become more
4: food insecure while in transit and staying in Libya for prolonged periods of time in comparison to their origin locations. Um, the integrated food security, um, or IPC, and CADRE harmonized data on regional food insecurity in 2021 uh, was used to understand um, these food insecurity along the route. So. Um, As you reach Tripoli, um, West African migrants spend an average of $658, um, and some some migrants who attempt to cross the Mediterranean Sea to Europe may spend an average of close to um, uh, 12,000 euros. Um, So while some migrants attempt to reach Europe, many migrants plan to stay in Libya for the long term. Long-term stays in Libya impacts a migrant's vulnerability and increases exposure to risk. And while economic opportunities may provide and improve uh, migrants in Libya, migrants continue to struggle with poor living conditions, food
1: insecurity, and personal safety. The website also features,
4: whoops, let me just go back also features uh, photographs of migrants during different stages of the journey. So when you're in that data view, you can also uh, view some of the migrants' experience uh, firsthand. Um, Ultimately, migration is risky, and we hope you um, can explore the risks of West African migrants further going to migrantsmove.migration.mit.edu and hear their stories. Thank you very much. And um, with that, I hope you guys spend time exploring the website and exploring the
1: risks that migrants face along the way. Sarah, thanks so much. that was incredibly interesting. And the website, uh, it's
0: truly interactive and uh, it's really incredibly interesting. I look forward to checking it out myself. Um, so we will be coming to the Q&A portion of our webinar soon. So please continue to submit your questions in the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen. Um, next up, we have Ganesh uh, Seshan. Ganesh is a senior economist in the Poverty Global Practice Group at the World Bank. Currently, he leads the Poverty Program for Lebanon. Uh, his pre- he has previously worked on the distributional impact of trade liberalization, economic integration, and on international migration. The work on migration is focused on examining policies and social programs to enhance the development, developmental impact of migration and remittances. Uh, Ganesh was a team member of the 2023 World Development Report on Migrants, Refugees, and Societies, and he has some comments for us uh, based on uh, what's been presented. So Ganesh, over to you.
5: Thank you, Daniel. And um, I'll I'll make this short because I think uh, I'm very eager to hear the, the feedback from the audience and to engage in that discussion. Uh, but just to begin with a disclaimer, these these are my views and not that of the World Bank. Even though I'll be sharing a, a couple of slides on, on some of the insights uh, that we had from the, the 2023 World Development Report on uh, on irregular or, or what we have labeled distressed migration. Um, so so we can move to the next slide, and uh, this is just my own. Take on what I understood to be some of the key messages or takeaway from from this work that uh, W P has done with uh, IFRI. and and obviously uh, I think I I did not spend enough time with the 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 website that uh, Sarah had and her team had put up, which was I mean just simply amazing. So I'm I'm eager to revisit that website and and dig into. Uh, those uh, those interactive elements. So so as I think Alan had also pointed out, uh, a couple of things that we learned from this this effort is that we we observed that most of these irregular migrants uh, tend to be uh, relatively better educated than the general population. They're mostly males uh, coming from urban areas. They also emerge from less food insecure households, in part because. Uh, they need resources in order to make this journey and uh, particularly if, if that is to go onwards to or the aim is to go onwards to to europe then these would not be amongst the poorest of households so that i think is something that we've also seen in in other parts of the literature even when it comes to uh, economic migrants sort of regular migrants that have to in some cases, pay for the opportunity to work abroad, right? So you need to have some resources in order to move. And and I think also the other thing that maybe we oftentimes overlook is that most of the of most migration is internal, if not regional, right? So it's 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 only a small fraction that cross borders. And in the case of uh, West Africans, I think the study had noted that only a third actually leave the region, right? Most of the movement is within the region. So that's something that I think we we tend to forget when we discuss uh, international cross-border migration. And and perhaps not surprisingly, it's the economic factors that tend to motivate uh, the movement, though we of course should acknowledge that the motives tend to be varied. Uh, They can be complex, but for the most part, at least what we have from both quantitative and qualitative efforts uh, that economic factors tend to be among the primary reasons to that motivate uh, this form of migration, uh, irregular migration. And then, and of course, I think it was also well noted that while food security may not have been the, the primary issue or concern at the point of moving, it may be experienced, it may be uh, elevated during that journey, for a variety of reasons that were also mentioned during the the presentation, and I, I think it's also telling to see that there's a range of um, measures or at least indications that food security appeared to be high, uh, particularly in the in the in the Libyan context, right? So ranging from twenty percent of the respondents who went without food for a whole day to you know thirty seven percent that were you know, constantly worried about not having enough food. So food security does seem to be a concern. And I'll come back more to this um, in the in the subsequent slide. And finally, we see a bunch of recommendations. And, I, and I, clearly this is where there's of course more room for, for iteration, more room for deliberation. But some of the things that, you know, I, love, I, I like to point out were this need for continuing to think about how opportunities can be enhanced at the origin right so the need for economic development continues to be if not a short-term goal certainly a medium if not long-term goal and and of course how we consider providing some type of assistance whether it takes the form of actual in-kind food or cash i think this is something that you know i think we can might talk about a little bit more and obviously uh, i think it's it's a well-noted point that you know you don't just particularly want to focus on a particular type of a profile of of migrants or irregular migrants, that such assistance you should also extend it to the host because clearly there could be tensions that arise when one group is favoured or targeted uh, relative to another. So 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 we'll come back to some of these recommendations, but uh, for now these are some of the key takeaways, and uh, we can move to the next slide. And. You know, like any study, uh, I think it's it's important, and perhaps uh, I think the the authors have not necessarily highlighted this, and, and they should. Is that it's very challenging to to come up with what we might consider a sample that is representative of irregular migrants, right? There are all kinds of challenges in terms of identifying them, talking to them, uh, and and so on and so forth. Uh, More because compared to say. Regular migrants. And these are individuals that fear, might fear for their safety, might fear uh, that they might be intercepted or detained. So they're going to be very cautious about talking to anyone. All right. So that leads to a set of what we might call selection issues, where those that you finally get to interview might not necessarily represent the broad uh, population or the subpopulation of irregular migrants that you're interested in. And one of the things that I hope that a, a future study could potentially extend to is, is also to intercept those that have moved on to, to Europe, right? Because we, 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 we can appreciate uh, their situation at the origin while in transit. But of course, we would also like to know what outcomes have been experienced when they have, when some, not obviously not all, but some have moved on to Europe. What are the, their circumstances? And of course, in this effort to come at come to a sample that might represent the profile of irregular migrants, uh, particularly say, for example, in the Libyan context, again, the, the way the sampling is done, uh, if we're not careful about it, uh, we may end up either with individuals that disproportionately were less successful, right? Because perhaps they're more willing to talk about it and, and, and in the hope of perhaps getting some assistance. Um, and so, so at the same time, uh, th- these are the sort of things that is not easy to overcome. So I, I just wanted to flag it. And clearly, there's, there's opportunities for, for more work of this sort, and, and certainly will be welcome. Um, so that with that, let's move on to the, the next slide. And uh, I just wanted to take the opportunity, uh, if you haven't heard about it, uh, hopefully, you, uh, you'll have the opportunity to, to take a look at the uh, the latest uh, World Development Report that has focused on uh, migrants, refugees, and societies. And one of the things that we uh, have in that report is this sort of uh, matrix where we talk about the, the match between uh, the, the skills and the experience uh, a migrant has and uh, with, uh, with that of the, the destination uh, country. And, and so you can imagine there are situations where there are strong matches, right? There, there, they have skills that are in demand and there are weak matches where they have skills that are not particularly in demand. And, and this then leads to a differential between the benefits and cost of, of hosting migrants, whether these are economic migrants, whether these are refugees, whether these are also what we would call distress or irregular migrants, right? And at the same time also, we, we know that the motives can vary. So on one hand, of course, you have refugees that move out of the fear of persecution. Uh, and, and so there are obviously conventions that, that define that. And, and then on the other spectrum, you have migrants that move to take advantage of opportunities at the destination, right? So motives can vary. And and we, we try to, at least as part of the, the, the work on this, try to sort of have this uh, matrix that classified into these four quadrants, the type of migrants, uh, depending on their motives and how well they match with the needs of the destination country. And here is where uh, in particular irregular migrants, or again, what we use, the term that we've used are distressed migrants. You can see them in this sort of the bottom uh, left corner. And if we move to the next slide, just to so further elaborate on this, and move to the next slide, please. We find that perhaps, I mean, maybe the key thing is, and I'll I'll say more about this, is that we wanna be able to find a way to to reduce the need for such movements, right? These cross-border movements by distressed or irregular migrants, either by finding a way to absorb them within the origin country or at the destination country, or in, in the cases where it's needed to return them humanely. And uh, let me say more about this in the in the in the next slide, if we can move to that. So in general, uh, and, the, and these are some of the, the highlights from uh, the WDR as, as far as, uh, as irregular or distressed migration is concerned, is that, that there are these sort of some you might even call major trends, right? be demographics, climate, conflicts which are increasing the pressure for irregular migration or distress migration and in particular i think the demographic factor and if not even the climate and conflict factor are, are, are particularly salient in the the african uh, context and um, you know i don't need to say more about this but at the same time we find ourselves knowing very little about this particular profile of migrants right it's not easy to to identify them it's not easy to talk to them right so and so particularly because of their status right and and but we do know that it they tend to respond quite rapidly to enforcement right the numbers the flows tend to respond quite rapidly to sort of strengthen enforcement and we see that in even in in this part of the world uh, it flows between South in Latin America to North America, and we know, of course, uh, that they often tend to be managed by criminal elements. Uh, we talk about the smuggling uh, and 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 what it does uh, and and the risk that it creates, right? So so we, we we understand this, but there's still a lot that we don't know. But one thing's for sure that that these type of movements tend to in, in endanger the type of legal entry channels that many have been advocating for. And so we have to be mindful that if these flows are not managed, uh, they can also compromise what many have been trying to to promote, which are more proper channels, regular channels of entry for those that are seeking uh, economic opportunities abroad. And so while development and economic development, particularly in the origin countries provide the long-term solutions for absorbing a group of these prospective migrants, it is indeed the case that in the short or medium term, we do need to find ways to expand those legal entries, right? Um, We do need to think about potentially complementary protections that can aid these individuals. Uh, And for some, the need for humane return might be one of the options that we would have to entertain. As far well as, uh, not surprisingly, given the cross-border nature of this, the need for further regional cooperation. And if we can move to the next slide, I think this is where the, the these last three elements, I think are the sort of the entry points for where some type of assistance, some type of humanitarian aid uh, can, can play a role. And uh, if we can move to the next slide, um, I have no clear answers to what the form of aid should look like. But I was tempted to put up some questions about you know, whether it should be in-kind, actual food, should it be cash or board, right? There are certain implications for uh, the form it takes and, and how it might potentially affect incentives to move. Should it be targeted, right? Should it be focused only on those that are planning to return home, those that are in detention, or should it be more broadly applicable to anyone who is in need, whether it's the host or not? Should it be conditional, right? So again, in this case, saying that you would only receive it if if you fulfill certain objectives. For example, if you return back to your origin country, right? And of course, there, there are more practical considerations as to you know how much or how often should it be distributed. All of this, of course, is not something that we're going to be able to solve today, but uh, you know, certainly things that have to be taken into account. Um, if we can move to the next slide, please. And so so I, I sort of leave with this, this question uh, and maybe it's a very broad question, but, you know, do we think that there is a risk uh, that this type of assistance may in fact induce or facilitate more irregular migration? And, and perhaps so, right? Perhaps so. And, and this is not a question that we can answer so easily without further effort. But I think one of the underlying principles that should govern any approach to to migration and something that we've emphasized in the even the World Development Report is that human dignity needs to be recognized. It needs to be helped upheld uh, no matter who or where one is. So that that should be, I think one of the underlying principles that govern how we might find ways to support these individuals uh, no matter what their status is. And I think it also is, it's also helpful to, to bring up this debate that has been I hope has tapered off, but it's still perhaps lively in some circles, as to the relationship between development and migration. And, and some of it refer, sometimes it's referred to it as the migration hub, where we see that uh, beyond certain levels of uh, per capita GDP, uh, the rate of uh, emigration tends to rise from a country and then fall leading some parties to say that perhaps uh, development aid is at fault because by enriching a country, you would only lead to more migration, which is obviously a very wrong way of thinking about it Um, because aid, I mean, development in, in its broadest form empowers individuals. And if it empowers individuals to undertake a migration journey that is to the advantage of, their own individual household, and as well as beneficial to the receiving country, uh, we shouldn't prevent that side, that type of migration. Right. So, so in the same way, just because aid can help migration in this, we shouldn't end it. So, in the same manner, if humanitarian assistance can help irregular migration, uh, or can 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 be of, of a service to irregular migrants, it doesn't mean that we should put it aside even if it potentially may induce some, some types or some elements to migrate more irregularly. But again, this is something that I think we'll get an opportunity to talk more of in the Q&A. And with that, I, I, I end my presentation and thank you again for this opportunity.
0: Thank you, Ganesh. Uh, really appreciate those comments. And um, I, I will have an opportunity for the speakers to also respond to some of what you've uh, brought up. So we are we are now in the Q&A portion of the event. Um, we have been getting a number of really excellent questions in the Q&A panel below. Please continue to add your questions there. Um, we're sort of curating the list that we probably have more than we can get to, but we will, we will do our best. Um, so thanks, we have all of the panelists back uh, on video, I appreciate that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off with some of the questions that were in the Q and A. You'll you'll have an opportunity to uh, Sarah and Alan and Sarah, you'll have opportunities to kind of respond to uh, issues Ganesh brought up as well. Um, but so I'm gonna start off with a question to Alan um, from the Q and A. So the the question is that migration tends to be costly. -hmm. Are there any indications as to why the would-be travel fees would not be invested at home in businesses? Is it imperfect information, or is it the hope of higher and more sustainable incomes abroad?
3: Yeah, I I think it would be the. My impression, although we would have to study it a little bit more, would be that it would be the latter. Um, If you think about it, if you make a, a, an, you could make an investment. uh, Let's let's use kind of an anecdotal. Story. Um, you invest eight hundred dollars in getting to Libya, and the wage rate that you can make for your level of human capital um, is three times as much as you were making at home. Um, you're gonna make quite a lot more money over the next few years, and you can then go home uh, with some of that money. Um, that's, I think the the rationale. Um, even, you know, thinking about even my dissertation, but uh, there used to be a blog called Casas de Ramesas the, um, where you could see migrant houses that had been built in, um So, I'm thinking about what do you invest in? Well, you could invest in a business, but that's risky, um, particularly if the business environment isn't great in your home country. Um, so a, a different type of investment people make after migrating is in, a, in their house rather than even investing in a business. So you see these four beautiful four-story houses uh, on hillsides in El Salvador, for instance, that are, that's a casa de Rameses, uh house of remittances that people have built um, to kind of reap the gains of their migration after they return home
1: Right. okay. so uh,
0: more likely that the of expected higher returns, uh, but but on a risky a risky endeavor. Thanks, Alan. Um, my next question uh, from the Q and A is to Sarah Williams. Um, there were actually a couple of questions related to kind of the use of the IPC classifications um, in your data. So, so one was worded like this. So, curious how you squared IPC classifications, which are traditionally by region, um, using a convergence of evidence approach with the local population, with the experiences of migrants in transit. And so, I think the question there is in part. That it's the IPC classifications are not specific to migrants, but also it, it they themselves are kind of uh, doing a convergence of evidence approach. And so, kind of how does, how do how did you use the IPC classifications in your approach and and factor these issues?
4: Yeah, thank you so much for the question. And yes, this is one of our data limitations. We don't we don't actually have data. Um, on food insecurity for migrants all the way along the passage, but uh, we use the uh, IPC food security data um, that relates to the local population, uh, making the assumption that migrants passing through might experience similar levels of food insecurity. But I think more importantly, that data is a proxy for added stressors migrants face at those local areas, right? So if you think about the transect and the risk along the transect, what we're saying is, you know, if local populations are experiencing food insecurities, most likely those risks are going to be felt Uh, more so um, by the migrants that are there um, themselves. Um,
1: And so a way to kind of estimate that risk. Great, okay, thanks, Sarah. And um,
0: now I have a a question for Sarah Musavi. It sort of comes in a couple of parts, Sarah. So um, the question from the the Q and A panel was the, very pleased to see the cash transfers have explicitly been outlined as an option for stuck migrants, if you will. Um, did you look at the feasibility of the modality in other parts of the route um, where they are in transit or where markets are accessible? So, and to kind of expand on that, I wonder if you could take spend a minute on modalities because we have a couple of questions on that. Um, I myself wondered how World Food Program prioritizes. Both the, the modality used, but then also the resources, given the various kind of sources or, or push factors for migration. Um, so yeah, uh, I'll kind of leave it there, but I might follow up with you on that.
2: Okay, Go ahead. yeah, thank you very much. Um, we didn't explicitly look at the feasibility of one transfer modality over another, um, vis-à-vis the different you know the different phases of the of the route um we developed the response options based on our understanding of the analytical findings but really leaving them as you can see quite high level in the report i mean that would require its own analysis you know to be able to and and those and those decisions are very context specific, very time and context specific but there is you know, a very obvious menu of options that we can avail, avail of. And, but what we do know are, you know, um, there, I mean, there are, there, there are experiences that we can learn from. So for example, in the Venezuelan um, migrant crisis, uh, many of the migrants, many thousands of migrants that, you know, moved into um, Ecuador, for example, were then rolled into the National Social um, social Protection Safety Net program, you know, which was quite, quite successful. It protected that, you know, the migrant population, you know, in the same way that it protected the national population. Um, we, we know, I mean, but... In, in the context of of moving along the Sahara um, the Saharan desert and and providing you know either in-kind or um, cash assistance I mean this will take definitely um, you know further kind of inquiry and analysis and understanding I mean these are uh, very important operational decisions that have to be taken really looking at all of the factors on the spot but yeah I mean it, I think the question, the bigger question that we aim to answer is that if you do, if you, and this is where I think the last point of your of your question comes in, the political pushback and, and all of this. I mean, this is where we're trying to move away from the politics and move towards um, an evidence-based discussion. So, you know, we are, um, we are bound by humanitarian principles and one of those humanitarian principles obliges us to respond based on need. So, if there's um, uh, if there is um, need that is you know that has been um, that you know has been brought to our attention, then you know I think that's where we want to take this conversation, and that's what we wanted to do with this study, to say that if humanitarian needs exist, I think that we have an obligation to deliver on that, and I think that you know this is also a very interesting point that. We all, you know, all of us that are engaged in this community and on this topic need to deliberate on, you know, linking also to Ganesh's point on, is that a, you know, pool factor? You know, I think not, but, you know, but I think that this is where we, again, need to be very evidence-based and and data-driven to be able to have, um, you know, intelligent conversations and move away from emotions and politics. Let me stop there.
0: Excellent, thank you, Sarah. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, I, I, you covered it comprehensively, so I'm not coming back with a follow-up there. Um, not now, but um, Alan, I'm coming back to you. Um, this next question was: What tools were used to measure food insecurity in the study? Yep. So what indicators of food insecurity were
3: in the research? Yeah, thanks, Dan. We used the um, for the quantitative analysis that we, or the, the primary survey data we collected. We used the food. Insecurity experience scale from the from FAO, um, which I think we use in a lot of F, of IFPRI surveys actually um, right now. and I think we, we we therefore considered somebody food the questions basically build up, and the more of them that you answer positively, the more food insecure the person the the respondent is. Um, so we used a cutoff uh, there for.
1: Declaring people, for labeling people as food insecure. Okay, right, good, thanks, um,
0: Sarah Williams. I'm going to pass this question to you, but you can decide to pass it to others if you want. So um, th- this is a it's a it's a kind of high level question. Of what are the what is the relationship between climate change and irregular migration? And and so I'm coming to you because maybe you can just talk about how you thought about that and putting together the kind of root based. Um,
1: Approach. Yeah, I mean, I think that as. Go Go ahead, Sarah.
0: Sarah Williams, why don't you start, and then. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um. So.
4: Um. You know, for the risk map, one of the issues that we were considering was climate, um, and kind of factors that increase the risk of migrants along the route. And so uh, there we were looking at at, uh, increased temperatures um, and vulnerabilities created uh, by high levels of heat, um, but also uh, more barren lands. Um, But um, I think, you know, also we know that um, some conflict does happen due to climate change and. Uh, kind of different issues related to that. And so we hope through the website that uh, these various climate issues come up through those
1: uh, risk factors, but I'll also pass it to Sarah, who I think also has some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, go ahead, Sarah.
2: I I really don't have much to add to what Sarah, I just wasn't clear about which Sarah you're referring to. Sorry.
0: I'm sorry. (laughs) That's on me.
1: Apologies. Sorry about that. Um, okay. So uh, let's see. So um, Sarah, Sarah Mousavi, um I, I wonder. So the
0: this question again from the Q and A panel. What is the plan to stop uh, migrants before they leave their home or land? So I and so I'll sort of bring that to you as sort of how does World Food Program think about this? Um, and and it's a it's a sort of development investment question that Ganesh also touched on. But um, you know, is it, given the potential need for large scale humanitarian response for World Food Program, is, does WP also think about kind of supporting with its partners kind of investments to reduce the flow? Thanks.
2: Sure. I mean, I don't. I mean. Firstly, I I don't want to speak on on the whole of of WFP and all of our operations that work in this regard. And I certainly don't think that that any of our interventions have the the single objective of stemming a flow, if you will. But certainly WFP and its programs in many, many, many countries and, and many countries where there are high migrant stocks Um, do invest and work with national governments and partners on building resilience and food systems. Um, We're even you know, considering and 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 starting to you know take an analytical look at um, youth and employment and sort of these these sorts of deeper um, development, changing lives, um, portfolio kinds of factors. So certainly, I mean, WFP does do that work, and um, in many countries. Um, but I think it's you know it's important to recognize, I mean, again, this is where the the conversation becomes very delicate and sensitive, Um, uh, and, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure if it would make sense for us as a community, let's talk about us as like the international community, um, and, you know, development and humanitarian actors alike who want to sort of support this problem statement. I'm not sure if it's in our best interest to look at, you know, addressing this problem statement um, from the perspective of of stemming the flow. Um, I think that, you know, it makes sense for everybody to, to, you know, make the playing field more equal and to reduce wage differentials so that, you know, but I, I think it's also important that you know, the legal pathways are explored. Um, And we know very clearly that if we look at, you know, food security objectives in particular, I mean, remittances, um, Trump, ODA in many countries when it comes to that regard. Um, So I think this is a much bigger conversation that we need to have, but but let me stop there.
0: Great. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Alan, I'm coming back to you with this one. This is a sort of Mm -hmm. very timely question. Um, Okay. Since the Black Sea Grain Initiative was not extended after July 17th, which would have allowed grain to flow from from Ukraine again to sort of move to Africa in particular. So how do you see this affecting, given that that was not uh, definitively not um, extended, how do you see Mm -hmm. this affecting food security related to migration? Uh, whether it be West Africa or maybe
3: other parts of Africa, yeah, great question. Um, and uh, a little bit outside of this, I get into speculation here more than um, than analysis. But uh, kind of two two ways we can think about that. One is that we know that really the main product of of Ukraine that has been affected that will be affected is wheat. So we have to think about where wheat is really consumed in Africa, rather than thinking about uh, and where wheat is consumed and imported, rather than thinking about you know um, because we expect a price increase in the price of wheat and maybe a little bit complementary grains because people will substitute out of wheat to other grains. Um, so I know, for example, if done some work in some countries where there's just not a lot of wheat that is consumed and they probably won't be very highly affected. And I know I'm thinking of Rwanda in particular but I think there are some other countries in in a similar regard that just don't, Uganda is one where I think 98% of calories are are domestically produced. Um, So I think that's a way to think about that question is like how much of the wheat is, how much wheat is actually being consumed in those countries and how much, uh, at least as a first step, a direct step and then thinking about um, how much is imported of what's consumed. Um, not a lot of wheat is produced in many countries in Africa because it needs a lot of um, a sunlight along a long growing day, uh, though I think there are varieties that work pretty well in, in Ethiopia now. Um, Ethiopia might be the one that would be potentially most affected, but they've already been having foreign exchange problems um, in general, so I'm not sure that it would uh, have, mu- have that
1: big of an effect. Uh, At least, again, thinking about this question speculatively. Great. Um, I have, uh, I'm going to bring this question to Sarah Williams,
0: um, but maybe, again, others may want want to come in. Uh, Does, so does the kind of migration that you're referring to here include pastoralists? Um, I found that to be interesting. So to what extent, because we know pastoralists uh, routinely migrate, that's uh, almost by definition, that they they move with, usually with their livestock. Uh, but do you see any? And are you aware, I don't know, for any of you in within the this really interesting work that you were doing, did you see that pastoralists become sort of uh, uh, part of the migration uh, population, if you will?
1: Um, <clears throat> yes, pastoralists are included,
4: and I can see that Alan is eager to discuss <laughs> this, so I'm going to pass it to him. Okay
3: sure i realized i forgot to say that um in my last answer that if there is not much change in food insecurity there's not going to be much change in migration as uh as a result um in terms of pastoralists we didn't really cover past pastoralists are going to move more internally regionally than they're going to move across for instance the sahara desert to try to feed their their livestock um so I'd, we didn't really include pastoralists much in this uh, context um, because we're thinking about this much longer distance migration as being irregular Um, to note, west africa in theory is um, a free movement zone for residents of west africa Um, that said in practice apparently nigeria doesn't always or often follow that uh, free movement um, so if you were, for instance, a Burkina Abe resident and you showed up at the border of Nigeria in an official capacity, they may turn you away. Um, or uh, the other exception is that when you're north of Agadez in Niger, um they basically consider you no longer in West Africa, even though you're still in West Africa, um, which has caused smuggling routes to uh, for migrants going to Libya or to uh, Algeria. To uh, to widen to stay away from from kind of known roads where uh, where authorities be great.
0: Um, thank you, Alan. Thanks everyone. Um, I we just have just a couple of minutes left. So uh, first, I just want to thank I want to thank the speakers and um, so uh, Sarah Musavi, Alan Debra, and Sarah Williams, and also Agnès uh, Seshan for coming in for some really compelling, discussing comments. I wanna thank all of the many participants that their, their their really excellent questions. I think it's been a great session. I actually wanna share with just a minute left. I just wanna share a few takeaways, a few things that I found really really compelling here. Um, the first is just the relationship of food security to irregular migration is incredibly complex. Um, so it's not as simple as this food security being a primary push factor that exists. And as Alan uh, described really well, it may be more relevant for for women and poorer women, um, but that a large share of migrants are, are, are uh, relatively better educated males um, uh, with better food security. So I, I found that uh, interesting and important. And um, next is a topic that came up a couple of times that attempts to help would be migrants that increase incomes locally, that this could have an effect kind of to support migration to almost fund the migration. Uh, but that, that that's a sort of, the extent that that factor exists that's a relatively short-sighted understanding of how development and income growth shape migration and uh, in in fact you know there's there's much more going on there and much more pull from potential high returns uh, from the risky journey and then i just wanted to sort of you know highlight and give you all credit for this really interesting kind of research needs design approach um, the development of the interactive website to inform kind of risks along migration routes. I think it's incredibly interesting and useful and informative, so uh, well done. And with that, we will wrap up. Um, Thank you all. Uh, Thanks again to the speakers and to the audience. And have a good evening, a a good afternoon, good day. Thanks.
1: Thank you.